Welcome to the podcast for Great Figures of the New Testament, a Sunday school series offered at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I'm the Stembler Scholar and host of this podcast series. Session 6, Judas Iscariot and Doubting Thomas. The figures we have focused on thus far in the series, Mary the mother of Jesus, John the Baptist, Mary Magdalene, Peter, and James the Just, all could readily be considered heroes of faith. Their witness and actions serve as an enduring model of discipleship that transcends time and place. They are great figures not just because they are prominent in the pages of the New Testament, but because they are faithful and good. But not all prominent figures in the New Testament would fit this same model. In fact, the New Testament has its fair share of villains, figures whose actions and attitudes leave something to be desired from an Orthodox Christian perspective. And in the next two sessions, we're going to turn our attention to some of these characters. In this session, we'll look at Judas Iscariot and Doubting Thomas, figures who have become symbols of betrayal and skepticism, respectively. And then next session, we'll look at the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jewish figures who are often held up as foils to Jesus and the disciples. Now, there are several reasons I'm interested in including these figures in our series. On the one hand, while we have a vague sense that these figures are somewhat unsavory characters, we often are a little fuzzy on the details. Who are they? What did they do wrong? How did they gain their reputation? And can we learn anything from how Jesus responds to them? On the other hand, I think it is important to extend a level of charity to these figures. To look again and see if they really are as bad as we have supposed. They might not exactly be models of faith, but they are not nearly as bad as we think in many cases. In fact, their less than stellar reputations are oftentimes a product of later Christian interpretation as much as they are the witness of the New Testament itself. And it is often the case that the line between these villains and our other heroes of faith in the Gospels and perhaps in life is not always as pronounced as we typically think. So let's begin then with Judas Iscariot. Judas is one of the twelve original disciples, but of course he is most well known as Jesus' betrayer. In fact, in modern English, the name Judas is often used synonymously for someone who betrays a friend or close companion. For most Christians, Judas is the arch enemy of Jesus. In our introduction to Judas in the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Here the Greek word is diabolos. The narrator then adds, he was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, though one of the twelve, was going to betray him. In paintings depicting the Last Supper, Judas is occasionally depicted with a dark-colored halo, contrasting with the lighter halos of the other disciples, to to signify his former status as an apostle. Even more commonly, though, in these scenes, he is the only one at the table without a halo, and occasionally he is shown turning away... uh, from Jesus and the rest of the disciples. In Western culture more broadly, Judas has become the archetype of the betrayer. In Dante's Inferno, Judas is condemned to the lowest circle of hell, the ninth circle 
of traitors. There, Satan, uh, pictured as a beast with three mouths, devours Brutus and Cassius, the assassins of Julius Caesar. But Judas, who Dante considers to have committed the ultimate act of treachery in killing Jesus, is trapped in the jaw of Satan's central head, while his back is torn at by the claws of fallen angels. But outside of his betrayal, what do we actually know about this Judas Iscariot? Well, as has been our practice in previous sessions, we'll start by looking at his name. Judas is the Hellenized spelling of the Hebrew name Judah, and it is a very common name in the New Testament, with no fewer than eight people being called Judas just in our New Testament canon. Judah Judah, or Judas means something like man of Judah, and it may indicate that he was from the Judean region, which would make him one of the only disciples not from Galilee. Possibly even more interesting is the second name given to Judas, Iscariot. Iscariot probably comes from a Hebrew phrase, ish kariot, ish meaning man, and kariot probably the name of a village. So ish kariot then would mean something like man of kerioth. Another possible derivation, though, might be the Aramaic word sakor, which means red or ruddy. Iconographic depictions of Judas often show him with red hair, in fact, as we'll see later in this session. Another possible derivation for Iscariot is the Hebrew word shakar, which means false one or deceiver, or even perhaps sakar, which means to hand over. And finally, there is a very popular derivation which suggests, which suggests that the name comes from the word sacarius, a Latin term meaning literally dagger man or assassin. The sacarii were a cadre of assassins among Jewish rebels intent on driving out the Romans from Jerusalem. We know about them from Josephus, where they used to hide in crowds and stab those who collaborated with Rome. Is it possible then that this Judas was a among the Sicarius? We simply don't know. This is not what is said in the pages of the New Testament, and neither even does Josephus make this connection. But the similarities of the name Iscariot and Sicarios has led some people to speculate about this connection. Now, many of these derivations of Judas's name seem to come from later efforts to find in his name a meaning that looks forward to his later betrayal of Christ. Even still, we must remember that Judas does not start off as a betrayer. He is, after all, one of the twelve disciples. And so we have every reason to believe that he, like the rest of the twelve disciples, traveled with Jesus, healed in his name, and played a crucial role in the spread of Jesus's ministry. So what then goes wrong in the case of Judas Iscariot? Where does he turn from good to bad, and what are his motivations for the betrayal in the first place? Well, the turning point in the gospel seems to come to us in the story about the woman from Bethany, who, if you recall, breaks open a costly jar of perfume and then pours it on Jesus' head. This story is found in Matthew and in Mark and in John, but in each case, the association between the actions of the woman and the motivations of Judah are construed somewhat differently. Let's look at Mark first, which is in chapter 14. In this story, some of the disciples looked on as the woman broke this jar, this costly jar, and poured it on Jesus' head. And these disciples asked why the costly perfume was used in this way. They were reasoning that it could have been sold at a higher price and the proceeds could have been given to the four. Now, as the story goes, Jesus affirms the actions 
of the, of the woman in this case. It is at this point then that Judas abruptly enters. And here we find out that Judas, that Judas has gone to the chief priest in order to betray Jesus to him. And when they heard of his willingness to do so, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So from this point forward then, he, uh, Judas, the text tells us, began to look for an opportune time. The Greek word here is eukaryos, to betray him. His actions seem to be, these, his actions here, Judas's actions, seem to be unrelated to what the woman does in the earlier verses. Nevertheless, I think what Mark is up to here is that he's drawing a contrast between the woman's generosity to Jesus with Judas' betrayal of Jesus for money. It's a study then in contrast and characterization. Now, Matthew gives us a slightly different account of Judas's motives. As with Mark, it is all of the disciples who question the woman for wasting the costly perfume. And like Mark, Matthew comments that afterwards, Jesus Judas goes to the chief priests, but Matthew is more explicit about Judas's motives. Listen to Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. So here in Matthew, uh, Judas's motives are explicitly connected to greed. So even Judas's initial encounter with the chief priest, he's looking uh, to make a profit on giving up Jesus to the Roman soldiers. Now, John's version of the story vilifies Judas even further. Unlike in Matthew and Mark, it is Judas alone in John's version of this story who questions what the woman from Bethany has done reading from John 12, 4-5. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? So in this story then, John clearly transfers the blame from all of the disciples to Judas in questioning what the woman from Bethany has done. But further still, John adds a parenthetical comment in the very next verse. John 12, 16 says this, He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. So then, according to John, Judas is already a thief even prior to this moment of approaching the chief priests. He commonly stole from the collection plate, if you will. So, so what Judas was doing in this case to betray Jesus for money was simply the next logical step in his depravity. Now, in either case, by the time we arrive at the Last Supper, it is clear that Judas is at the point of no return. The story goes like this in the Gospel of John. Just after Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, he says to them, Not all of you are clean, for he knew Judas would betray him. Then Jesus says, The one who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, in these words, there might be a subtle allusion to Psalm 41, 9, and 10, which says, Even my bosom friend in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted the heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay him. In either case, the disciples are confused, so they have to ask Jesus, Lord, who is it? 
Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it into the dish. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon, Iscariot. After he received the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. This was John thirteen twenty six to 27. Now, after this scene, we, we come to the uh, actual betrayal. In the Gospel of John, the betrayal is set in an unknown garden, but in the synoptics, the place of the betrayal is Gethsemane. The details of the story vary slightly between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in each case, Judas apparently establishes a signal to help identify Jesus for the soldiers. The one whom he kisses is the man to be arrested. Now here, the irony shouldn't be lost on us. The kiss was a sign of Christian greeting in the early centuries, and Christians were actually known for this sign as a sign of peace. But what is here happening is that this sign of peace among Christians becomes a sign of betrayal for Judas. Now, after Jesus' arrest, we do not hear again of Judas in either Mark or John's Gospels. But Matthew offers us a fascinating epilogue to the story of Judas. He records that upon hearing that Jesus was condemned, Judas repents and gives back the 30 pieces of silver that the chief priest had given to him. The chief priest refused to take the money back, so Judas departs, throws the money in the temple, and goes to hang himself. The chief priests then take the money and buy the potter's field as a place to bury foreigners. In medieval, medieval passion plays, uh, Judas is depicted as hanging himself, and then demons uh, come, come and steal his soul, and they boil it so that Satan can have a nice dinner. Now, Acts offers us a different account of Judas's death. There, Judas never repents, and instead of giving back the money, he uses it to buy a field for himself. Uh, in Acts, it's described as a field with the reward of, of his wickedness. One day, as he's walking along in this field, he falls and, quote, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Now, the death of Judas here becomes a more full-blown legend in later literature. By the second century CE, uh, the Christian writer Papias has Jesus wandering the world as an example of impiety. He's an inflicted with some sort of disease or infirmity. His flesh swells so much that he could not even make it through a door. Uh, his eyes swell so that, you, that they could barely open. Blood and worms flowed all over his body. And here in this story, Judas dies on his own property, property, and the stench is said to have been so bad from his rotting corpse that the land could not be inhabited again. So as we can see here in the writings of Papias, by the second century, Judas was increasingly vilified for having been the betrayer of Christ. But at the same time, a counter-movement also exists. In Gnostic texts of the 2nd and 3rd century CE, there is praise for Judas for his betrayal. This might seem odd, but the logic goes something like this. Judas's betraying of Jesus leads directly to Jesus's death and thus the passion and the resurrection. So in the eyes of the Gnostic literature, had Judas not betrayed Jesus, perhaps he never would have died, and thus humanity never would have been saved. So in this sense, then, the Gnostic literature 
actually view Judas as the best and the most faithful of the disciples. Now, theologians and philosophers alike have wrestled with what to do with Judas and his betrayal. Did he act in obedience to God's will and thus affect the salvation of all humankind? If so, should he be held guilty for what he had done? Should we consider him still a betrayal? Betrayer. Or, if his betrayal was predicted by Jesus, as John tells us during the Last Supper, could Judas have done anything different? Did he still have free will to not give Jesus over to the Roman guards? These questions bring us far beyond matters addressed in the New Testament. We need not go this and however we read these earlier stories, we need not go this far in trying to redeem Judas. But nevertheless, I want to offer a word of caution. On the one hand, all of the disciples at some level ultimately betray Jesus. Peter, who is called the rock and is a foundational apostle in the early church, in fact denies and betrays Jesus three times leading up uh, to the scene of Jesus's um, uh, conviction. And none of the other disciples are even present at the cross, and they are scared and fearful until the resurrected Lord appears. So in this sense, then, we might say that all of the disciples have a small bit of Judas in them. And if we were really being honest, we probably would have to admit that all of us also have a little bit of Judas in us. On the other hand, there's also been a long tradition in Christian theology, of projecting Judas's negative attributes onto the Jewish population in general. It's true in the writings of even great theologians like Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The Jews, because of Judas, get associated with greed and gluttony and even stench. And in medieval art, Uh, Judas is actually depicted with a long hooked nose and with eyebrows that meet together in this fashion that's often reserved for depicting Jews. And so here I think we need to reserve, uh, show much caution, that we do not extrapolate from the behavior of this one person to the behavior of a whole group of people. Even if Judas is uh, a bad betrayer, and I think all signs in the New Testament point in this direction. He need not be assumed to be an example of the behavior of all Jews. In fact, to do so would be contrary to the very heart, or to make this decision would be contrary to the very heart of the gospel itself. And I find this to be an important ethical point for contemporary culture as well. We, we must not extrapolate from the violence of individual police officers to negative stereotypes of the whole police force. We must not extrapolate from the violence of certain extremists who happen to be Muslim to a characterization of all Muslims. We need to resist this uh, impulse and not, in effect, model what many have done with Judas and the Jews. Now let's turn then to the other figure from today's session, Thomas. And here my comments will necessarily be more succinct. Like Judas the betrayer, Thomas the doubter is named as one of the twelve disciples. His given name is actually Judas. But as we have seen, since there are a lot of Judases in the New Testament, he is also referred to as the twin. This nickname derives from the fact that in Aramaic, there is a related word, teoma, uh, which also means twin. So there's this... uh, 
uh, sound alike between Teoma and Thomas uh, deriving this nickname. This idea is kept alive in the later church, where Thomas is also called Didymus, which in Greek also means twin. But this then begs the question, who is Thomas's twin? No one in particular is mentioned in the pages of the New Testament, and the reader is left to wonder about who this might be. In fact, in a Christian text from the 3rd century CE, it is suggested that Jesus himself is Thomas's twin. This would then give us a parallel with Greek mythology, where we find the twins Castor and Pollux, with one being human and the other being divine. Though Thomas has become an important figure in the early church, very little is actually said about him in the New Testament. In the Synoptics, he is not mentioned, in fact, outside of all of the lists of the twelve disciples. It is in the Gospel of John that, re- that he receives slightly more attention. For instance, in John eleven sixteen, Thomas is portrayed as a courageous leader among the disciples. Jesus here is on his way to Judea to raise Lazarus from the dead, and Thomas fears that Jesus will be in danger if he enters that region. And so he says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Then, in John 14, 5 and 6, Thomas reappears, and this time Jesus is speaking about his death. And Thomas asks, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And to this question, Jesus responds with the well-known words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But Thomas's starring role does not come until the end of the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, 19 through 29. The story there, I suspect, is familiar to you. It is Easter Sunday, and the disciples are together in a locked room out of fear that they too might be rounded up and executed. Then Jesus suddenly appears to them and said, Peace be with you. He shows them his hands and his side, and the disciples rejoice, for they realized the resurrected Christ was in their midst. But it turns out on this occasion that Thomas was not with them. Why, we do not know. A 6th century text speculates that Thomas was off attending to his sick son. But, is part, but this is part of a later legend, and it's not the New Testament witness. In any event, the disciples report to Thomas what they had seen. But Thomas rather famously, or perhaps better infamously, responds, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. This response is taken then as a sign of Thomas's doubt. And it is from this scene that he gets his name, Doubting Thomas. For this reason, Thomas is seen as an emblem of skepticism, and it is, and it is thought uh, that his skepticism is in contrast with the sight-unseen faith of the other disciples. However, I once again feel the need to come to the aid of Thomas, for I think Thomas is misunderstood for at least two different reasons in this text. First, note that the contrast between him and the disciples is not all that extreme, Recall that when the disciples first see the resurrected Lord there in that locked room, they apparently don't believe either. Rather, it is only after Jesus shows them his hand and his side that they rejoiced and recognized that the risen Lord was in their midst. 
So in this sense then, Thomas is not asking for anything more than what the other disciples had. Though the point still might stand, those reading John's gospel would not be able to see the resurrected Christ. So they would need to believe in the resurrected Lord based on John's witness alone, not on Christ's appearance. But this would be true uh, for all of the disciples, not just because of the action of Thomas. Now, second, to understand why Thomas's doubt was signaled out in the midst of all the other doubt that we find among the disciples in the pages of the Gospels, we need to know something about some early second century controversies about the nature of Christ. There in the early church, there were followers of Christ who grounded their understanding of Jesus in the teachings of Thomas, and there were others that grounded their understanding of Jesus in the teachings of Peter and of John. Now, now, the teachings that were associated with Thomas are perhaps most clearly preserved in what is known as the Gospel of Thomas, a 2nd century CE Gnostic text preserved in Coptic and found in 1945 at Nag Hammadi, a city located about 120 miles south of Cairo. The Gospel of Thomas consists not of a narrative or even of an overarching story about the life and passion and resurrection of Jesus. Rather, the Gospel of Thomas consists of 114 logion, or sayings, reportedly spoken by Jesus to Thomas, who then later wrote those sayings down. Now, there's some overall resonance between these sayings and what we know from the canonical Gospels, but there also are some major points of difference. Specifically, I want to point out a major difference when it comes to understanding the nature of Christ. Thomistic Christology proclaims what is known as docetism. Now, this Greek word uh, docetic literally means to seem or to appear. And so, this view stresses that Jesus only seemed or appeared to come to earth in the flesh. He only appeared, in fact, to be human, but really was otherwise. Thus, because of this reason, docetism stresses that Jesus, who was never human, never really died and thus never was resurrected and never suffered. In contrast, the Gospel of John stresses that the Word became flesh and lived among us. John insists on the humanity of Jesus, whereas the Gospel of Thomas explicitly denies it. So we have to imagine then there being a rivalry between Thomistic and Johannine theologies in the early church. And that rivalry, especially as it comes to bear on Christological understandings, gets played out here in this scene regarding doubting Thomas. Let's look again at how it concludes. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, John 20, 27 to 28. Now, when seen in light of the Thomistic docetism that we just encountered, when Jesus asks Thomas to touch him, to reach out his hand and to touch him, he is proving to Thomas that he has, in fact, a real body. This docetism idea was simply not true. And Thomas himself believes. So, the supposed originator of docetism here in John's gospel discovers that Jesus doesn't seem to be human, but in fact really was human and was resurrected in body and in flesh. Thomas, John shows us, was wrong. Now, the verse that follows immediately after 
John gives a parting shot at Thomas. John 20.29 says this. Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and have come to believe. In other words, blessed are those who believe that Jesus comes in the flesh without actually having to touch and see him. Blessed are those who disregard the idea of docetism and instead agree with John that Jesus has come in flesh to live among us. Now, historically, that's the best way, I think, to understand this controversy about Thomas in John chapter 20. This then is not a story about a general lack of belief or even one that elevates uh, faith uh, that happens without sight. Rather, this is a theological controversy that gets played out in a, in a story about Jesus' resurrection appearances. Now, however we understand John 20, this theme of the doubting of Thomas lives on and thrives in Christian art. In fact, from at least as early as the 6th century, we have a well-known scene called the Incredulity of St. Thomas. This scene was used in a number of contexts in medieval art and is also found uh, in Byzantine icons. Now, there's some question and controversy in these uh, works of art about whether Thomas actually puts his hand in his side. Uh, Most artists have Thomas just merely gazing closely at Jesus' side and his hands, but a wonderful work by Caravaggio clearly shows Thomas touching, literally putting his finger deep into Jesus' wound on his side to tell that he is truly flesh and blood. Interest in Thomas does not end as John's gospel comes to a close. Rather, it lives on and even builds momentum in the early writings in the writings of the early church. In fact, several non-canonical texts that are, 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 exist that are either about Thomas or are said to be pseudonymously written by Thomas. The most prominent among these is known as the Acts of the Apostles, and it tells of the later adventures of doubting Thomas. Now, this was, in fact, was a very common genre in the first several hundred years of Christianity, and there's an Acts, uh, an, an apocryphal Acts associated with almost every major figure in the New Testament. Now, in the in the Acts of Thomas, um, one of the important scenes is is that there is a casting of lots to find out where the disciples, each disciple should be sent to evangelize. And Thomas's lot falls on India. And so he is commissioned then as a missionary to India. Um, And in fact, there's still some Christians today who trace their origins to Thomas. But when he first is commissioned, Thomas is reluctant. And in fact, he refuses to go and ask Uh, the disciples to send someone else. Now, this response is, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it's not all that different from uh, from the prophets who would often initially resist their calling to God's mission. But here's how things get resolved in the Acts of Thomas. The resurrected Jesus appears at this time, and he meets an Indian merchant who had traveled to Jerusalem looking to purchase a slave who was skilled as a carpenter in order to build his king's palace. Now, when Jesus encounters this Indian man, he actually sells Thomas to him as a slave. So, later, uh, when the man, when the merchant finds Thomas and asks if he is the Lord's servant, 
Thomas says yes, and he reports to Thomas the deal that Jesus had made. And from there forward then, Thomas joins this merchant and travels back to India, where the king commissions him and gives him a large sum of money to build a palace. But as the story goes, Thomas, instead of using the money to build the palace, gives all of the money away to the poor. The king is furious, understandably, when he hears what Thomas has done with this great sum of money. But Thomas wins over the king when he simply says, I am building you a palace in heaven. And on this word, the king is converted. So even if Thomas was once a doubter, in the acts of Thomas, he is a faithful evangelist and bears witness in powerful ways to the transformative power of the gospel. That Thomas is redeemed in the eyes of later Christian authors, I have no doubt. And I think we would do well to do the same.